Heavenly Father, thank you for the transforming truth of the gospel and the evidence we see of that in this passage of Scripture. And we pray that as we reflect on this together, uh, you would help us to see more clearly how powerful the gospel is and your work in the world and to be encouraged in that to continue to be part of it. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. This man is Guillaume Bignon. Uh, he was uh, a French atheist who amazingly uh, came to faith in Christ. It would seem against all the odds if you know anything about uh, the spiritual state of France. So what happened? Well, let me tell you his story. And I quote, I grew up in a wonderfully loving family in France near Paris. We were Catholic, a religious expression that seemed to arise more out of a tradition and perhaps superstition than conviction. As soon as I was old enough to tell my parents I didn't believe any of it, I stopped going to Mass and pursued my own happiness on all fronts. I landed a job as a computer scientist in finance and played volleyball in a national league team. An important part of my young male French atheist ideals consisted of female conquests. Here, I was starting to have considerable success. All in all, I was pretty happy with my life. And in a thoroughly secular culture, the chances of ever hearing the gospel, let alone believing it, were incredibly slim. When I was in my mid-twenties, I met an attractive American woman whilst on holiday in the Caribbean. She mentioned that she believed in God, by my standards, an intellectual suicide. She also believed that sex belonged to marriage, an even more problematic belief than atheism, if that were possible. Nevertheless, once the vacation ended, I returned to Paris and she to New York, and we started dating. My new goal in life was to disabuse my girlfriend of her beliefs so that we could be together and without antiquated notions of God or sex standing in the way. I started thinking, what good reason was there to think God exists? And what good reason was there to think atheism was true? Of course, if I was going to refute Christianity, I first needed to know what it claimed. So I picked up a Bible. A few weeks later, uh, strangely, one of my shoulders started to fail me without any accident or evidence injury. Uh, being unable to play volleyball, my Sundays were now available. So I decided I would go to a church and see what Christians do when they get together. I drove to an evangelical congregation in Paris, visiting it as I would a zoo to see exotic animals that I had read about in books but had never seen in real life. I don't remember a word from the sermon, and as soon as the service ended, I made a quick exit. But then I thought, this is ridiculous. I have to figure this out. So I went back inside and asked the pastor if we could talk. And we met over several weeks. I bombarded him with questions. He patiently and intelligently explained his worldview. And I nervously started to consider that all of it could be true. Uh, what followed was less theatrical and more brutal. God reactivated my conscience. 
and this was not a pleasant experience. You see, at the same time I had started my investigations, I had also committed a particular, particularly sinister misdeed, even by atheistic standards. Though I knew exactly what I had done, I had shoved it down inside, suppressing it and trying to forget about it. But God brought it back to mind in full force, and I finally saw it for what it was, and I was struck by an intense guilt and a crippling chest pain. One day I was lying in pain in my apartment near Paris when all of a sudden the penny dropped. That is why Jesus had to die for me. He who knew no sin on my behalf so that in him I might become the righteousness of God. He took upon himself the penalty that I deserved so that in God's justice my sins could be forgiven by grace as a gift rather than my, by my righteous deeds or religious rituals. He died so that I might live. And at that moment, I placed my trust in Jesus. And at that moment, I asked him to forgive me in the way that the scriptures promised he would. This, in short, is how God took me, a French atheist, and brought me to a wonderful faith in Christ. I was not looking for God. I neither sought him nor wanted him. He reached out. He loved me while I was still a sinner. He broke my defenses and he decided to pour out his undeserved grace that his son might be glorified and that I might be saved from my sin. That's the gospel and it's good news and it's worth believing. It's an amazing story, isn't it? Staggering. It's a story, if you like, of a most unlikely convert. It's a glimpse, isn't it, of God's work in the world. God being at work to save people, to bring them to Christ in what often seems a seemingly impossible situation. Uh, such a story, and indeed our passage of Scripture today, poses questions to each of us here today, whether you presently trust in Christ or whether you don't yet do that. Uh, firstly, let me address those who are already trusting in Jesus. Here's a question. Are you not sometimes tempted to conclude that some people are just unreachable with the good news of Jesus? Uh, do you think sometimes there's no point in sharing the gospel with that person? They would never be interested in Jesus. Some people do seem very content in their lives, don't they? Uh, they seem very fulfilled uh, without Christ. And true, their lives may hit hardships at times, but they seem to cope okay. Uh, some people may seem very set in their views. Uh, they may have no time for God, and they, indeed they may feel no need for him. And so what do we do? We see people like that, and we remain silent. We think it's just not worth sharing the gospel with them. There's no way that they could come to faith in Christ. We conclude it would be a futile exercise. Uh, secondly, let me address those of you who have not yet trusted in Christ. Are you tempted to think that Jesus is of no relevance to you? Uh, maybe you think that's because of your religious background. Uh, why would I need Jesus I'm a Hindu or I'm a Muslim. You may think that because of your socio-economic background. You think, oh no, 
Jesus is just for, for white-collar, middle-class people. Or on the other hand, you may think, no, Jesus is only for the poor and those who need a crutch in life. Well, at whichever camp you sit in, uh, the segment of history recorded in the book of Acts says otherwise. Uh, the good news of Jesus is good news for everyone, regardless of their life situation and regardless of their background. And what we see in this historic account in Acts chapter 16 is very powerful. It is God at work. God at work to transform lives. And he is not inhibited by barriers of class, culture, or religion. And we're going to see today what happened when the good news of Jesus first arrived in the ancient city of Philippi in modern-day Greece. Now, this historical account does not detail all of those who came to faith in Christ in Philippi. You'll know, of course, that in the New Testament there was a letter to this church written by uh, Paul 12 years later. Uh, it's called, of course, Letters to the Philippians. And by that point, there was a church established there. But the point we see in Acts 16, it's just beginning. And what, ought the Luther, uh, what the author of Acts, Luke, does is he zooms his lens in onto three members of the church and he retells their stories of how they came to faith in Christ. Uh, why does he do that? Well, it seems that he deliberately selects people that are very, very different from each other. And his aim is to show how God is at work to powerfully transform people from all works of life. So, uh, let's see what happened. How, firstly, how did Paul and his itinerant entourage come to Europe? Uh, that in itself was under the God's miraculous hand. I've got a map uh, to help us uh, chart it. And it starts, of course, with Paul revisiting the churches that he's previously established on his first missionary trip. Uh, he travels around uh, Galatia and visits the churches in uh, Derb and Iconium, Lystra and Antioch. Uh, but from there, uh, the natural route for him and his team would be to go southwest into Asia. There were the bustling cities of Colossae and Ephesus. And yet, God, through his spirit, prevents them. Uh, we're not told how, but God, through his spirit, says no. So, uh, they travel north. And as they approach the province of uh, Bithynia, the spirit of Jesus then again says no. Don't enter that province. So, they keep tracking west until they reach the Aegean port of Troas. Now, where should they go from there? God gives them the answer through a vision to Paul. He sees a man from Macedonia, and this man beckons and begs for help. And then Paul and his group realize this is a call of God, a call to preach the gospel in what is modern-day Europe. And at every stage, we're going to see that God is at work to oversee the work of his team. And so the next day, what do they do? They book their tickets to Macedonia which is modern-day Greece. Uh, having landed at Neapolis, they travel the 15 kilometers inland to the Roman colony and the leading city of that district, Philippi. And they stay there for several days. And there, uh, Luke the author, author uh, brings us to encounter three people in particular whose lives are transformed by Christ. Firstly, Lydia. 
uh, in the absence of a synagogue, uh, the missionary team go to the river on the Sabbath. There, as expected, they find a place of prayer where Jews and God-fearing Gentiles gather. And so they, they share the gospel with a group of women, and one of them, called Lydia, becomes a Christian. Chapter 16, verse 14. Uh, one of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshipper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So Lydia, uh, she's obviously a successful businesswoman. Uh, she's from Thyatira uh, in modern-day Turkey. Uh, Thyatira was famous for its dyes. And it seems that Lydia is the Macedonian agent of a Thyatiran manufacturer of expensive purple cloth. And she comes to faith in Christ. And with the opening of her heart, uh, she opens her home. She invites the missionary team to stay at a house. Uh, now, to have a house big enough to accommodate them all means it must be quite a big house. She must be quite well off. Uh, and not only is she a wealthy, successful businesswoman, but she's also uh, spiritually receptive. Uh, we're told that she is a worshipper of God. Uh, that means that she's a Gentile, but she's believing and behaving like a Jew, although she's not yet become a Jew. And the God that she worships now opens her heart to believe in Jesus the Jew, the one who was sent by the God of the Jews. And although the message is Paul's, the saving initiative is God's. God opens her heart to believe. And so she comes to faith in Christ. That's story number one. Uh, the second story is that of a slave girl. And this is a very different person to Lydia, and yet the gospel is active in her life as well. This slave girl is at a complete the opposite end of the uh, social, economic, and the spiritual spectrum. Uh, over the course of several days, a demon-possessed slave girl hounds Paul and his ministry team, shrieking, in verse 17, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Uh, truth it was, but welcome it was not. And finally, in the name of Jesus Christ, Paul commands the evil spirit to leave her. And it does. The Lord had opened Lydia's heart, and now the power of Jesus Christ grants freedom to the slave girl. Now, we're not actually told that she became a Christian or that she was baptized. However, it would seem that that is what Luke, the author, is implying. Uh, the fact that her deliverance took place between the conversion of Lydia and, as we'll see, the jailer, suggests that she too became a member of the church at Philippi. And yet, how different she was to Lydia. Uh, unlike Lydia, who owned much, this girl owned nothing, not even herself. And whereas Lydia was a worshipper of the true God, this girl was in the grip of the occult. And yet the gospel sets her free. That's story number two. And thirdly, uh, we come to the jailer. Uh, need, needless to say, uh, Paul's deliverance of the slave girl doesn't go down very well with those who owned her. The evil spirit had enabled this girl to predict the future. And this had been a real money spinner for her owners. 
However, with the evil spirit gone, so was their source of income. And as you can imagine, they're not very happy. So what do they do? They stir up trouble for Paul and Silas. Uh, they incite the authorities against them. They trump up false charges against them. As a result, Paul and Silas, they're arrested, they're stripped, they're severely flogged, and they're thrown into the darkest innermost cell of the prison. Yet in spite of this great injustice and the searing pain of their lacerated backs, what do they do? Amazingly, they don't groan and curse. They sing and they pray. They had an amazing joy and a confidence that even the direst of circumstances couldn't deprive them of. No doubt the jailer hadn't had prisoners like them before and it certainly had the attention of the other inmates. At midnight there's a mighty earthquake and it miraculously provides the means of escape. The cell doors, they fly open and the manacles are loosened. However, Paul and Silas not only remain themselves, but persuade the other prisoners to do so, although we're not told how. When the jailer awakens, he fears that all is lost. He knows that the buck stops with him. He's been told to guard them carefully, and now he fears that he has been derelict in his duty. And so what does he do? He moves to take his own life. And he's only halted by Paul's cry, We are all here. And then Paul tells him the good news, verse 30. He, that is, the jailer, then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. And that's what happens. He and his household, wonderfully, in the middle of night, they come to faith in Christ, and they're baptized there and then. And now the same hands which in all likelihood had mercilessly flogged their backs, bathes their wounds. And from the depths of despair, he is transported to the heights of delight. Verse 34. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. He too now shared the joy of Paul and Silas in the gospel. So the jailer, uh, here again, a very different character to Lydia and the slave girl yet also transformed by the work of God in his life. Uh, socioeconomically, he was probably halfway between Lydia and the slave girl. Uh, as Philippi was a Roman colony, uh, civil service jobs like his were often given to former army personnel. Hence, he would in all likelihood have been an ex-Roman soldier. So he's a, a working class man working for the Department of Correctional Services. And in his job and with his history, He's undoubtedly a bit of a rough diamond. He's a rough character. And he would have seen much which would shock many. He's quite tough. Uh, he's also a Gentile, an Italian. Uh, we're not told about his religious convictions. However, in all likelihood, he is at best a superstitious, polytheistic pagan. And yet, God wonderfully transforms him. God is wonderfully at work in his life. God calls him to faith in Christ and he and his family are transformed by the gospel. So in conclusion, let's reflect on the significance of what we see here in this passage of scripture. What we are seeing here is God at work 
God at work powerfully to save and to transform people in Jesus Christ. And what we're seeing here is he does that in a huge spectrum of people. They are people who many would say, some of whom would say, are unreachable. And yet God is at work bringing them together through the message of Christ. Overcoming barriers of religion, barriers of race, barriers of culture, barriers of class. And at every stage we see God at work. It was even God who guided the missionary team in the first place to Philippi rather than to the other provinces. And it is God powerfully at work. Just think of what Paul had witnessed on those missionary journeys. He saw the power of God at work. He saw the power of the message he declared, transforming people and bringing them to this joyful belief in Christ. And Paul himself would later comment in his letter to Romans, Romans 1 verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. So to bring it right home to us today. Firstly, if you're somebody who's already trusting in Christ, what confidence do you have that God could draw others to Christ through you? Are there some people whom you think they're not going to be interested in hearing about Jesus? Are there some people whom we think, I just don't think that they could ever come to faith in Christ. They're too far away from him. They're too steeped in their own life. They seem too content. But do you see what we see from God's word today? It is dangerous to prejudge people in our own mind. We don't know whose life God will work in. And it may be the most unlikely of people. And therefore, it encourages us never to withhold the gospel from people, not from anyone. Rather, on the other hand, we should be prepared to tell all people about Christ. We should be prayerful. We should be faithful. We should be brave. And we should be ready. And if you're someone who is not, not yet trusted in Christ... Uh, there are three things in particular to note about Christianity from what we see here. Firstly, and I have to be honest with you, Christianity will at times involve hardship. Paul and Silas knew that all too well. Uh, the Philippian believers would know that in due course for themselves. As I've already mentioned, 12 years later, uh, Paul writes to this church uh, and it when he is now in prison himself again, this time in Rome. And it seems that when he then wrote that letter to the Philippians, the Christians there were having a hard time for their faith. Uh, Philippians 1 verse 29. Paul says to them, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Life for those Philippian Christians was hard. And that is part of the Christian life. That is what Christ told his followers to expect. And that has been the experience of Christians over the centuries since. And so we have to be honest. Christianity will at times involve hardship. But that is not all. Because secondly, Christianity involves joy. Faith in Christ brings 
joy. That was the Philippian jailer's experience. At verse 34 again. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole family. He now had the joy of the gospel. It was the joy which Paul and Silas had as they languished in prison, which enabled them to declare the praises of God and to sing and to pray in those darkest of circumstances. And therefore, you see, it's a joy which makes the hardship worthwhile. It's not a frothy joy. It's a deep-seated joy that comes from knowing that through Christ, all with God is right, and that God now watches over our lives and every aspect of them. It's the joy of finding answers to life's deepest questions, why we are here and what is our purpose. It's the joy of being reconciled to our God as our Heavenly Father rather than facing Him as our stern judge. And it's the joy of knowing that death is not the end. Rather, it's the gateway to a life everlasting of peace and perfection with Christ and His people. But there is a third and final factor I want to bring to your attention about Christianity today, which we see from this passage and the broader teaching of Scripture. And this is the most important one of all, and this clinches it. Because, of course, it's possible to have a misplaced joy. It's possible to have a joy which is not grounded in reality. But that is not the case with Christianity. It is hard at times. It is also joyful. But most importantly, it is true. Christianity is true in an absolute sense. Now, Paul picks up on this in another of his letters, Titus chapter 1, verse 1. There he declares, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time and at his appointed season he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. Christianity is true. The God who conveys this message to, through people is also a God who does not lie. And he's at work in the world to bring people to a knowledge of the truth. And that truth centers on the person of Christ and his work through coming to this world to die for our sins. And you can learn about that truth through the primary source documents. Read them for yourself, the New Testament documents. Because it's on that basis you can investigate this amazing claim that Jesus is the answer to your heart's deepest longings. I'd encourage you to read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and ask the question, what does this tell me about this person, Jesus, who he is, and why he has come. And my prayer is that then through reading those, you will come to have that joy which the jailer himself had on that dark night 2,000 years ago. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. And it is a transforming truth which transforms lives and eternal destinies. We pray that that truth would go deeper into our hearts. As we trust in Christ, we would come to a deeper understanding of 
all that that truth should mean for life now and for hope of all that is to come. And we pray for those who do not yet understand this truth, that you would open the, the eyes of their hearts and minds to understand it and see it clearly. And for that wonderful truth to lead them to that joy in the Lord Jesus Christ through faith in him for the forgiveness of all their sins. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.